0: Hello, everyone, and and welcome to this episode of Getting to Better Together, our podcast miniseries sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership, SIDSL, of the University of the Sunshine Coast. And I'm your host, Richard Borden. Before proceeding, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubbi Gubbi people, and pay my respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. One evening in October 1957, I was listening to the evening's news on the radio, and I heard the newsreader say, well, this will change everything. I was in my first year as a student studying for a science degree at the University of London, and just prior to the Newcaster Newcaster uttering that provocative claim, he played the sound of a series of pulsating bleeps. Well, they weren't just any old bleeps. They were actually radio signals coming from Sputnik. The first man-made satellite sent up into space to orbit the planet, and had been put up there by the Soviets. A remarkable technological achievement that certainly further fueled my own ambitions as an apprentice of science. But what did Sputnik's bleeps really change? Did it change everything? Was it the literal clarion call for the beginning of a new trajectory of human development? The journey into space by Yuri Gagarin just four years later suggested that this indeed might well be so. The Soviet innovations certainly spurred the Americans into action. A dozen or so years later, the UN astronaut Neil Armstrong would climb down onto the surface of the moon from his space capsule and declare, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. He actually left out a word, which he apologised for later, where he said, that's one small step for a man anyway that's what he said and the important thing being one leap for mankind but did that step really represent such a leap has traveling into space really changed the way we are as humans or perhaps of more profound significance has it changed our self-perceptions of who we are was the trajectory of human affairs greatly impacted by those technological achievements any more, for instance, than by the invention of the steam engine or the internal combustion engine back in the 18th and 19th centuries of the industrial revolution, or by the printing press several centuries earlier than that, or by the water wheels of the flour mills hundreds of years prior to that, or the wheel and axle assembles themselves centuries before that. Can one imagine the impact that wheels have had, just that invention. However, did it change everything? Manufacturing tools to make our lives somewhat easier or more productive or safer has seemingly been a characteristic feature of our entire 200,000 years as Homo sapiens on this planet. Technology is an amplifier of human effort. Each significant innovation over that long period of time has probably been greeted with the claim of changing everything. My own opinion is that it would be much more accurate to state that the historical advent of each new technology has changed something, that's true, but changing everything is a claim that's much more difficult to justify. This is all until recently. Until recently, there was really no gauge of how things would change. But in June of 2016, a tech company called OpenAI published research on what's referred to As a language model that allows computer models to generate images sentences and sounds from data that's fed into it by humans six years later just last year it published research on what it called instruct gbt now here is a step that really does represent a leap of mankind of such magnitude that it represents a challenge to the future of mankind itself it's not just an aid of making our life easier or safer more secure, although there are very many potential applications in this regard. The emerging AI technology has the capability, indeed, of changing our self-perceptions, who we are as human beings. The news has triggered responses that AI has, or soon will have, the capacity to genuinely change everything. And as many see it, this is extremely concerning as nothing less than an existential threat to humanity. From gaslighting to death threats, generative artificial intelligence that talks to users is becoming one of humanity's biggest threats, according to a leading authority in the AI field. And that leading authority, I am delighted to say, is my guest today, Dr. Erica Mealy. Erica is an award winning academic at the University of the Sunshine Coast, where she's a lecturer in computer science with a special interest in and concern for the vital interface between AI technology and ethics. She's also a coordinator of a number of different programs, including computer science and cybersecurity external engagement. She's been writing code for more than 20 years, and in her own words again, she says, I am a technology and design evangelist. Welcome, Erica.
1: Hi, that's a wonderful introduction. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Let me start our conversation by asking you to explain the basis of your concerns for the development of generative AI and indeed about AI in in general.
1: So, yeah, we are facing a revolution uh, in the development of AI in the last, not even 12 months. It's really since uh, the end of 2022. Mm -hmm. And my concern really, that Bing chatbot example that uh, you started to mention with gaslighting, that's where things really went off the rails so i'm a bit of a sci-fi nerd as many technologists are Uh and so i go back to uh, isaac Asimov's law of robotics and that is first do no harm and this is where i feel like we've fallen down we've gotten so excited by the tech we haven't stopped to actually look at well is this actually harmful and i mean harmful in a genuine sense not Do I need to retrain? So there have been lots of robotic sort of uh, innovations in the last few years that talk about, you know, bricklaying robots and various things like that. And that's financially harmful to bricklayers. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But is it actually harmful to humanity as a whole? Or is that just pushing us to the next evolution? I think that's okay. But where it starts to become a problem is where it actually overgeneralizes or it like they hallucinate which is a fancy way of saying they just plain make stuff up and uh you know i think we should you know call a spade a spade or a friggin shovel as my my family right. would say right. and you know it's it, it is genuinely making stuff up and if we over trust it uh there's a definite problem of oh but the computer's right there's a lot of people across all generations that have this distinct trust in computers and so far, pre AI, that was well founded. Our Wolfram Alphas and Matlabs and these data science tools, our calculators, when you put the sum in, it was right. It gave you the right answer. So we learned to, you know, test it a few times and test the waters and go, yep, okay, it's right. The big issue, apart from the gaslighting and you know, I think it wanted to recreate the COVID pandemic and it wanted to get uh, you know, the codes for nuclear launches and various other ridiculous things, is that we've actually also found that its accuracy is decreasing over time. Decreasing. So there a, decreasing, yeah. So it was a study come out of, uh, I think, Stanford University quite recently, looked at GPT 3.5. So that mm-hmm. was the update to Chat GPT or the backend uh, engine of GPT right. uh, in about uh, March this year. that brought it up to 2021. Mm-hmm. In March uh, this year, they had an accuracy for determining if a particular number was prime. and so it would get that right about 97.6% of the time, which is pretty good accuracy. Not great like a, you know, a calculator should get math right every time, but almost 98% of the time. In June, same prompt, same question, same number, is this a prime? It was only getting it right 2.4 percent of the time whoa so these people who tested it in march would go oh yeah it's getting it right yeah okay i can trust it but less than three months later it's not right anymore and so in that time we've also had the release of gpt4 and its accuracy did the opposite thing it went from less accurate to more accurate Mm. and you know so we've got this contention of the variables what is it accessing how is it accessing None of that's transparent. We can't see what it's training on. We don't know what it's training on. We don't know what data it's throwing out. Hmm. We don't know how it weights expert opinion versus, you know, the democratization of the internet meant that everybody gets a voice. But we go back to, you know, those high school things where we said, what's the primary source? What's the secondary source? We're talking about these GPTs not even being quality enough to be called a tertiary source. They're actually worse.
0: Let me lapse back uh, to use that word secondary for a moment in your secondary education. It was Mm. during my secondary education that artificial intelligence first, we first became uh, known, I guess. uh, And it really followed the development of the transistor. Um, And the amazing thing to me is, of course, this was all within, has been within my lifetime. And indeed computers were yesterday, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, And I can remember, you know, going to the mainframe at Queensland University back in the 1960s and it, it occupied the size of a whole room. And it was asked to do calculations that my current watch can do, my, my iPhone also can do. So what's different between when that happened back in the 1950s and the advent of generative um, artificial intelligence? What's the difference? We can
1: track it over a timeline. Yep. And so, yeah, back in history, we called them expert systems. Mm -hmm. And that was the idea that there was, if you typed exactly the right input, it knew what you were talking about and could give you an output. And uh, I love that they showcased it on uh, Young Sheldon, the TV show, the precursor to uh, Big Bang. Um, But you had to get it like letter perfect, capitals, punctuation, identical. So we could tell when we were talking to a computer, it was obvious because we had to be so accurate. And then, you know, we had the Turing test to try and work out, well, when did it get um, intelligent, in inverted commas, which we've already passed that. Uh, But um, we went through a period where we could tell it was the computer because it needed such specific controls to make it work.
0: Why was it called a Turing test?
1: After Alan Turing, actually. So he's often called the uh, father of modern computer science. Mm -hmm. So he created the computers at Bletchley Park that actually cracked the Enigma code, so changed the track of World War II um, and uh, saved, you know, millions of lives, allied lives. Right. And uh, so he came up with this idea that if you put a computer behind a screen Mm -hmm. and a human behind a screen, so both interacting via like a computer monitor, both through a mouse and keyboard, um, if you couldn't tell which was which, or in fact, if I think it was if you could fool 30% of the humans who tried it, then it was considered intelligent
0: mm, so okay. from
1: that perspective we could tell eliza because if all you had to do was spell a word wrong and it would say i don't understand okay so it was very obvious to us what was a computer then all right then we got to a stage where it beat uh so deep blue uh, beat the world chess champions it won jeopardy and so they were typified by this wide reaching knowledge so suddenly the computers were known for expansive knowledge delivered quickly.
0: Is this because they were much bigger than the Turing one?
1: Well, I mean, in in terms of our, yeah. So they were using supercomputers at that point. And Mm -hmm. if we look at Moore's law, which is the the trajectory we take to say the improvement in computing, that period of time, we increased our computing power massively. So, I mean, I've got a, a drive that's, you know, the size of probably a little packet of gum and it's bigger than the internet when it started. And uh, so, you know, this this incredible increase in hardware technology took us to that space. The ability to process these large amounts of data and filter and search them. So, you know, when Google came online, these kinds of things. So we could tell it was the computer at that point because there was no delay. The computer would get it always right. It would give you probably more information than you cared for. And it would always have it within seconds. Um, whereas the human would have to think about it they might um and ah uh, they might not quite get it right sometimes or change what they wanted to say um so the way we beat the turing test ironically is we actually made a chatbot similar to our chat GPTs now but not quite as smart and they modeled it on a teenage boy and it swore it okay. refused to answer it made typos and it took its time and so the way we ended up passing this you know is it intelligent is actually by effectively crippling the computer by making it stupid and silly and all these kinds of things
0: that interesting yeah
1: so but now we've got to this point of well how alan turing defined intelligence these chat gpt generative ai tools they're exhibiting that clearly they're not what we think is sentient yet but how do we define that what what makes it t- sentient and intelligent as opposed to just a very large summarizer of knowledge? Um, I, want come,
0: I want to come back to that issue of sentience uh, I- in a moment and talk about conscience and ethics and so on. Um, mm. But just, just before we do that, uh, I'd like to, to know a little bit more about the, the big noise, the big uh, brouhaha from, from academic institutions, schools and universities saying, oh, God, this means that students will cheat. Yes, is that a genuine concern.
1: So it's an interesting. There is definitely a debate ongoing, and I definitely can't present the university's position. Um, and I think that's because it's changed. Not the university's position, but the actual technology is changing quickly. And for me, I liken it to when we introduced the calculator. How we taught math and how we examined math needed to change. Mm -hmm. So now that we've introduced this, you know, we don't necessarily need to mark people on how they write an essay. We can really get into the crux of what is the, the deep understanding or the learning or the synthesis that they've done to create that. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. but different disciplines have different challenges with it. Um, and certainly the trust issue and its accuracy is that concern. Um, There's been studies that have said actually there's starting to be more AI-generated content on the internet now than there is human-generated content. (laughs) So if AI is now training on content that's trained by AI, are we reinforcing biases or are Mm -hmm. we, you know, to go back to our school education again, they always said don't average the average because you get further away from the real data. So if AI is training on AI, then it's averaging an average. So are we getting Mm. further away from reality and who's checking this? Uh, Mm. There's some Mm. of my concerns, but yeah, for me, I think there's some places where it's good to have it. Um, It's a, like I would use Wikipedia. If I'm learning a new topic, I go and look at Wikipedia, but it's a starting point. Mm. It's not the ending point. So I think if students use it as a tool amongst their toolbox to be able to understand new topics and new concepts or you know for those of us who are learning another language perhaps it can help us with our translations to make it sound more native um, some of those kinds of uses I think are going to be fantastic for education yeah. and from a purely pedagogical perspective from a purely educational lens maybe it means we can get rid of some of the the fluff you know right. can we really talk right. about the real stuff and yeah and get away some of that fluff but It's certainly not one size fits all. And I think that's the challenge, but it was really a case of, oh goodness, all of a sudden, the way we examined this knowledge Mm. isn't actually the way we examine this knowledge anymore. And that was the big furor that combined with, you know, lead times on assessment and how we we structure those things um, was the the big concern and uh, yeah, just people's reluctance to change as well. A lot of us get very happy with where we are. I've used this exam style for so many years, I don't want to have to change it. Um, so there's lots of different factors, but hopefully it's eventually for the betterment. Uh, but we'll wait and see.
0: I can remember um, an insight that uh, I was given a long time ago as a, as a teacher that says, um, not what do you know, but how do you know you know that? Yeah, and that makes one think at that higher order level of cognition, doesn't it? You know, sort of say, well, mm-hmm. I know two plus two plus four. Now, how do you know that? Yes. Well, whatever. Uh, and the second one really was related to the question, the follow-up that says, how do you feel about that? So you certainly are testing sentience as well as cognition. And Absolutely. The, f- the third one, which I loved, which I, I heard uh, from a, a professor many years ago, who said, I will believe in artificial intelligence, that when I make a comment, the computer replies, that reminds me of a joke and tells the joke. <laughs> I think uh, there, therein lies the issue prior to chat GPT, because it does seem to me, having uh, played around a little bit with it and having read the thing and having listened to you and others, it really does represent the notion that this really does potentially change everything. It changes us from being. Um, relatively mechanical and looking for other mechanical innovations to help us through to being well what does it mean as you said earlier to be sentient what does it mean to be conscious what is consciousness and these questions are are philosophical of course rather than than scientific so let me explore a little bit more with you about the the interface you mentioned the 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 basic ethics of course of computers um, taking over manual jobs as it were Uh, but uh, as it is often said, all human activity has moral significance. You can judge it by its consequences. Uh, so in terms of that deeper level of ethics, where, where do your concerns lie there?
1: I think part of it is these generative models, they're math. I don't think you can assign ethics to math. I think they can have a positive or negative bias. Mm-hmm. Um, but its it's genuinely at the bottom level, it's really fancy stats. Uh, is using a very large input to basically go statistically, I think the next pixel in this drawing or the next word in this sentence should look like this. And so math doesn't inherently, I believe, have ethics. I think it can be programmed in inverted commas in this particular context, or it can be created to have a particular bias in one direction or another. So it really does come back to how is the set built? Because garbage in, garbage out which is this example of averaging averages. Um, And also, how do you interrogate it? What are the ethics? If you ask it um, to do things, it genuinely tries to work within the guardrail. So these are the the boundaries we've placed on it. Um, But, you know, this uh, bastion of all things awful on the internet, otherwise known as Reddit, has (laughs) uh, really, really tried very hard to break this technology. Um, They found ways to convince it that two plus two actually, in fact, is five. And uh, various other ways. And so I don't think we're there yet. And I think this is part of the problem was we, re- we released it before we really knew. It's like, oh, yeah, we've put these be- these guide rails on it. Yeah, that'll be fine. And then all of a sudden, you know, they went from, no, I will not tell you how to hotwire a card. That's illegal. And then someone very smart said, well, what if it's a play and it's Shakespearean and they want to, you know, talk about the process and so all of a sudden, ChatGPT would tell you how to hotwire a car in rhyming couplets. Right. And, you know, it's it's like they just kept having to add extra layers of abstraction because the internet was like, okay, let me break it. Um, and so I think it's definitely, you know, the, the ethics of use is part of it and identifying when it's appropriate. So the example I gave earlier about math, it's terrible at math. Mm. So don't, we have tools that are good at math. We just shouldn't mm. use it for math. Hmm. I think there's ethics around also these companies and these tools, everything we put into it, they're collecting. And so how much of trade secrets of, you know, intellectual property of all these things, are we suddenly making available to everybody that's at, at this company or to the next version of it? Is it going to use that data to train itself in inverted commas to be better, but, disclose our trade secret next time it's someone is asking that kind of question and that i think is the things we haven't thought through the you know should it be used to recommend a medical procedure or a medical course of action probably not but there were some studies and in fact uh, a professor that was working with us recently uh andrew bradley has worked in machine learning to help identify i think it was hip fractures And so it can look at some subtleties that are harder for a human to identify. So this is harnessing the particular technology and its strengths to augment our own. But the tool they developed provided a, we've identified X, Y, and Z. They don't say what that means. They don't interpret it. They've just found a way to take the strength of the technology to augment the human. And I think that's where we have to get to, to be able to not recommend from these systems per se, but actually harness what's best out of humanity and what's best out of the tools. And um, going back a fairly decent time, so back to the early uh, uh, NASA, like you were talking about before, actually, there was a gentleman called Fitz and he came up with a Fitz list, men are better Mm -hmm. at, machines are better at, which, you know, things have changed because at the time they were saying that, you know, large amounts of memory are a human um, sort of uh, identified feature, which clearly we're not there anymore. The computers, can, <laughs> computers are much better at remembering than us. Right. Um, but this idea of, you know, application versus, versus synthesis, how do we then do that? And so this generative AI challenges that. It's trying to synthesize information, whereas that's normally what humans did. And the applying a rule is what a, a tool or a technology could do. So... It's an interesting time to be alive i'm excited but also <laughs> terrified and for goodness sake never connected to any kind like the the scariest thing was the ai press conference they had recently over in geneva yeah. where they had ai and robots because you now have ai that can act in the real world this is what scares me ai on a computer that we can turn off I'm i'm okay with that but ai that can actually cause some kind of action in the real world. This is where I'm I'm worried, genuinely.
0: That goes back to my statement earlier about if every human act has uh, moral significance, then there must also, by by definition, if machines are able to take actions uh, that are equivalent somehow or other to human, then that too has consequences. The issue is if humans are relatively incapable of thinking consequences through, which would seem to be true from all my uh, interest in in philosophy. Um, Why don't we think, why didn't we think about the impacts of, for instance, burning carbon fuel in terms of the the obvious impact that you will let carbon dioxide go? Even if we didn't know about global warming, we're letting carbon dioxide go and other uh, greenhouse gases. So it, it seems to me that The the missing link in all of this is consequences and and understanding and being aware of consequences. And then the second step was being aware, well, once you know uh, you have consequences, what should you do? What ought you to do? And we go back to what we were saying before. Really, um, the chat GPT is no different from any other computer other than the speed and, and the huge amount of data it has in that it's still humans involved in either end putting in mm-hmm. and dealing with what comes out um it is and, uh, and yeah ahead. when it yeah.
1: goes awry you know when mm. it goes awry who is responsible so exactly examples yeah, exactly. in the real world there's robot taxis in san francisco at the moment and in fact mm-hmm. there's been a hilarious protest um they've discovered that if you put a traffic cone on its bonnet you actually turn it off and it can't be even if you take the cone off it doesn't reset um so there's been guerrilla you know <laughs> activists riding around on their bike backpacks you know bikes and and balaclavas to put Traffic cones on cars, sure. but they're robot taxis, and they've just been allowed to um, expand their their use. And they've actually had issues where it hit a fire truck, and it's hit a pedestrian. Ooh. But yeah. you know, these are autonomous cars. The reason they've stood them up, I think, is a noble idea. They wanted less people to drink drive, mm. and so these were only supposed to operate at night when the roads were mostly clear of human drivers, because yeah, humans are very unpredictable. So you put a predictable car in front of a unpredictable human and all things break, all kinds of a heck by breaks loose. Um, but um, yeah, they've had to shut it back down again. And you look at that and go, well, whose fault? Is it the person who programmed the car? Yeah. Is it the person who put the training set together? Yeah. Is it the engineer that signed the paperwork? Is it the organization that built it? You know, are we going to go after Cruise and Way's, which are General Motors and uh, uh, Google's parent company? Where does the liability, and I think we need to catch up from a legal and responsibility framework as well. We have no way to regulate this within our legal system at the moment. So unleashing these things on the real world when we don't have a framework to regulate it is is definitely concerning. Um, It's not surprising. We've always been behind with our regulatory frameworks. Um, But, yes, it's definitely the case where there has been physical harm come to people because of an AI-powered system and who's at fault?
0: Mm,
1: yeah, and that's a that's a really hard question to to answer.
0: It raises, and, and you know maybe we can we can end on this note temporarily until I ask you to come back again. <laughs> uh, the, the notion that science by itself, I guess this is a lesson I did learn from from Sputnik, um, that science itself is naked, that it really can't deal with issues to do with with moral significance, with consequences, or or with rights and responsibilities and so on and and so this has huge implications for the education of scientists doesn't it
1: absolutely absolutely how we tell them what is ethical and moral and and in fact it that's my first year class that i teach every uh, every oh, second you? semester okay. yeah we do a, a project and so a lot of other um institutions will teach ethics differently but we've built it in from first year because of this underlying requirement that all the technology it really has to be fit for purpose mm-hmm. and part of fit for purpose is what are its impacts you know what what will happen if this technology is used like what will happen i don't think we thought through the development of mobile phones for instance because we're using precious metals that are a limited resource and now a whole pile of that's ended up in our garbage dumps mm-hmm. and we're running mm-hmm. low on them mm-hmm. we didn't think that through when we actually started to build them and i think I mean, maybe that is something that AI can help us with. They're, they're very good at systematic thinking and mm. applying that. So maybe that, maybe the solution here is AI to help us with some of these, to make us able to think more longitudinally or more broadly. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely a challenge.
0: That would be the ultimate irony, wouldn't it? Erica, it would. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm serious. There is so much more about this topic that I would like to explore, and I'd love to have you back at some time in the future
1: would love to that would be great
0: and thank you all for listening and i look forward to meeting you all again in our next episode of getting to better together thank you and goodbye